Tonight we'll explore Revelation chapter 4. But as we do so, we, should, we need to be very conscious of the fact that we're entering the third of three sections that the book of Revelation is divided into. The book of Revelation has the unique aspect that it has a divinely inspired outline given to us. In Revelation chapter 1, we saw a vision of Jesus Christ. In verse 19 of chapter 1, the Lord tells John how the book is organized. He says, Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be metatauta, that is, after these things. Section 1, of course, is the first chapter, the, the vision that John saw in chapter 1. The things which are refers to the second chapter, second uh, section of the book, chapters 2 and 3. We've just completed the study of the seven letters of seven churches. And we discovered that those letters are edifying in many ways, personally, also for the corporate bodies, but also lay out a history of the church. When we get to chapter 4, chapter 4 opens with that very phrase, metatauta, after these things. So first of all, it triggers that we're moving into a next section. But there's another aspect of chapter 4, and what I'm going to share with you is obviously not free of controversy, and yet at the same time, it's a very, very key perception that you need to test on your own and get comfortable with. But it's interesting that after the close of chapter 3, the church has been mentioned 19 times by the end of the chapter 3, and it does not appear again for the rest of the book. There's an allusion at the end of the book, but it's really it's not, a, it's not a chronological kind of remark. So the church is conspicuous in its absence from here on out. We're going to discover something else as the book unfolds, is that we're going to discover the amazing Jewishness of most of the rest of the book. And what makes that striking, if you've been a student of Paul's epistles, you know that Paul divided, in, in, the people he's talking to, he divided them into three groups, the Jews, the Gentiles, and the church. And he argued extensively that if you're in the church, you're neither Jew nor Gentile, you're in the body of Christ. That doesn't mean you lose your Jewishness, don't misunderstand that, but it does mean that you are then in that elect body, the ecclesia. The word church is actually translated from the Greek, the word is ecclesia. What it means is the called out ones. Called out of what? Called out of the world. It's interesting that chapters 2 and 3 are the things which are, and we just finished that, John is now going to be focusing, the Lord's going to be focusing through John, on the things after these things. After what things? After the church. So it should not surprise us that there are many, many clues, but they're just clues. The chapter 4 marks the end of the church. It's behind us. We're going to discover oh, something else about chapter 4 that's very, very important is the shift of scene. Where has John been in chapter 1? He was, on, he was on Patmos, seeing a vision of Jesus Christ. In chapters 2 and 3, he was receiving seven letters that was to be sent to all seven churches. In chapter 4, verse 1, the, she, the scene is now going to shift to heaven. John is going to be called up into heaven. As he does so, this is going to beg on our part some essential background. And one of the things that we'll touch upon as we go, but I'm going to encourage you, as part of your own homework, to understand chapters 4 and 5 especially. We're going to be, we're, chapter 4 is going to take us right to the throne of God. And if you're going to study the throne of God, you'll want to study Ezekiel 1 and 10 and Isaiah 6 and some of the other passages. But you'll also want to undertake, if you haven't done it, you want to undertake a very detailed study of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a model that God instructed Moses to build to provide a dwelling place where he would dwell among his people. The tabernacle turns out to be one of the most fascinating studies that you can undertake. And we'll touch on it a little bit as we get into the study here. I encourage you to consider that part of your background for chapters 4 and 5. And, of course, the throne of God I've mentioned, you want to you uh, get in your mind Ezekiel 1 and 10 and Isaiah 6. Uh, are the previous occasions that are conspicuous where the prophet was ushered in before the throne of God itself. You know, we use that phrase so casually. What an in incredible thing. You, you talk about thrones of past history. You can think of many incredible uh, august thrones. But can you imagine the throne of the ruler of the universe? Well, we're going to be ushered in before that uh, in this passage. 
But the other thing that is perhaps the most difficult and yet perhaps one most fundamental thing is to have in your mind this issue of the rapture of the church. Very controversial doctrine, I realize that. But I think it's important for us to have that in view. Um, when we were uh, studying in the past the rapture, I think the one thing we tried to highlight... You don't have to write these down. They'll be in the notes, and they're also in, the, in our briefing package called uh, From Here to Eternity. But if we take all the lists, the, the list of all the passages of the second coming of Jesus Christ in broad terms, we discover they're in two groups. There's one group in which the Lord comes secretly for his own and captures them away, and there's another one where he comes to the earth with his own to take control. Two separate. As you look at these passages, you'll discover they highlight two different events that are quite opposite in their nature. In fact, you can summarize these uh, passages. In one case, there's a translation of all the believers. In the other one, there isn't any. One, the translated saints go to heaven, and the other one, the translated saints come to the earth from heaven. In one case, the earth is not judged. The other one, it is judged, and so forth. And, uh, uh, and it goes, one is before the day of wrath. One concludes the day of wrath, or the day of the Lord. One has no reference to Satan, the other one Satan is bound. In one case Christ comes for his saints, the other one he comes with his saints. In one case he comes in the air, the other one he comes all the way to the earth. In one he claims his bride, the other one he comes with his bride. And uh, in one case only his own see him, and the other case uh, uh, every eye shall see him. In one case the tribulation really begins, and the other one the millennial uh, reign begins. Anyway, these distinctions I, I commend to you for... Uh, being sensitive to, but as long as we're on this subject, let's just touch it off by exploring a couple of Old Testament passages. Um, turn to Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26. The rapture passages, of course, the one that should be fam most familiar, to the, the two passages that are the root passages for the so-called rapture of the church, is 1 Corinthians 15, the last few verses, or 1 Thessalonians for the last few verses. In fact, hold your place here. I'll come right back to Isaiah. Let's touch, touch base on 1 Thessalonians 4 to have that fresh in our minds as we get into the rest of the study tonight. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 13, Paul writes, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them who are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died... And rose again, even so them also who sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them who are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's one of the two passages. The other one is 1 Corinthians 15, from verse 51 on, and you can check that on your own. In Isaiah, we find a very strange passage, and um, many people have different views of it, but I just want to share it with you for your own uh, uh, interest. Isaiah 26, verse 19, Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. A very clear statement of the resurrection. The resurrection, of course, is alluded to in the oldest book of the Bible. The oldest book of the Bible, book of Job. It's older than the books of Moses. We're in chapter... Um, 19, verse 25 on, he says, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, and mine eyes shall see, be, behold, not another, even though my reins be consumed within me. Famous, famous assertion by Job of the resurrection. But notice what Isaiah continues here in verse 20. Strange verse. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers... And shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquities. The earth also shall disclose her blood, and shall no more cover her slain. Come, my people. 
There's that word come. Verse 4 of Revelation is going to use that same word. Come, my people. He says, enter thou into thy chambers. That's rather interesting. What chambers could those be? Remember John 14 in upper room. Jesus tells his disciples, I go, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now we're going to see, when we get to chapter 4, not only is Jesus in heaven, but the seven lampstands all are also. And where are the seven lampstands identified in verse 20 of chapter 1? The church, seven churches. Kind of interesting. We're also going to encounter the famous 24 elders before the throne. But we're going to discover that Jesus is... Where is Jesus today? He is interceding on our behalf. In chapter 4 on, he's no longer doing that. He's taking control. He steps forward in chapter 5 to pick up the seven-sealed scroll and all of that. And we have chapter 6 on starting God's wrath and his indignation. In, um, in this little verse here, it says, Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation. I'm going to suggest all seven bowls of them are poured out or passed. For the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. The book of Revelation deals with a group that's called the earth dwellers, those that dwell upon the earth. But if you're sensitive to that phrase, you'll notice that the other groups it talks about are in contrast to the earth dwellers. If you're in Christ, you're not considered an earth dweller. You're a pilgrim. Your citizenship is elsewhere. Turn to Psalm 27.5, just to poke at these a little bit. Psalm 27, verse 5. The psalmist, in verse 5 of chapter 20, of Psalm 27, Makes, has an interesting hope. He says, For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. That's interesting. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. Turn to Zephaniah, chapter 2, verse 3. Zephaniah. Now, none of these are doctrinal. Don't misunderstand me. They're just interesting. They're hints. They're clues. They're insights, perhaps. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, who have kept his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Now, in an explicit sense, the rapture is not in the Old Testament for some very good reasons, because the rapture involves the church. And in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, Paul makes it quite clear that the concept of the church, the doctrine of the church, that the ecclesia, was hidden from the Old Testament. It was his privilege to reveal it. And that's a very, very key idea. And we've covered that in the past by way of reminding. Well, at this point, we've sort of warmed up. Let's jump in and take a look at Revelation chapter 4. We're prepared now for the third and final section. By the way, most scholars will recognize the three sections, as I've mentioned, Chapter 1 is the first section. Chapters 2 and 3 is the second section. Chapter 4 on to the end as the third section. That is metatauta after these things. Most people looking at the book would take chapters 20 and 21 and 22 as a fourth section because they obviously the subject changes again even in a broader sense in chapters 20 and 21 as you'll see when you get there. But in any case, chapter 4 verse 1, metatauta, John says. After this, or after these things, I looked... And behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice that I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up here, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Metatauta. The code word metatauta occurs here twice in this verse. Most conservative scholars tend to view the rapture as being signified here in chapter 4. John is in heaven, and there's a handful of other clues we're going to discover uh, as we get into this chapter that seem to sub- uh, substantiate that viewpoint. But understand, it's a viewpoint. It's one I hold, but that doesn't make it correct. What you need to do is do your own homework, check these things out, come to your own conclusion. And by the way, let me remind you once again as you take notes that at the top of your notepad you put Acts 17.11. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. That's where Luke reminds you not to believe a thing Chuck Mistler tells you. 
But to be like the Bereans, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, but they searched the Scriptures daily to prove whether those things be so. Now we encounter this door opening. This occurs four times, by the way, in the book of Revelation. We saw it in the, as the door of opportunity in, ver, in chapter 3, verse 8. Twice he, sa- he speaks of knocking at the door and it opening in, in chapter 3, verse 20. And now we find the door being alluded to here as opening into heaven itself. And he says that he heard, as it were, a voice of a trumpet talking with me. And the trumpet voice is suggestive of 1 Thessalonians 4 again, because we have the, the, the trumpet alluded to there. And by the way, uh, don't get confused with this trumpet. The trumpet of God is what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4. The trumpet of God, that phrase, there's a lot of trumpets. There's the silver trumpets, there's the shofar, lots of trumpets. The trumpet of God only appears twice in the Scripture. Once in Exodus 19 when he, at the Sinai when the Ten Commandments are given, and the other one is in 1 Thessalonians 4. Now the question here is, I don't think this is the shofar or the silver trumpet here either, by the way. They're in heaven, right? So if that's the case, I could say three times. But it's, again, we move on. Come up here. Now another thing that we should keep in mind, and this is perhaps the most difficult challenge among us. You and I in, inherently tend to think of the world in that we live in. This podium, the walls, the floor, a car outside, whatever, are the tangible real things in life. That when we come to a Bible study, we start talking about spiritual things that they're sort of ephemeral, they're sort of fuzzy, they're sort of up there somewhere. And we have a tendency, uh, maybe we'll articulate it in different ways, but we tend to regard where we are as reality and out there being the heavens or the spiritual reality, whatever that means. What we need to get in our heads is that we generally have that backwards. First of all, let me just touch base on the so-called physical reality. I have a podium up here that seems to be solid. If I maintain that it's solid, and you maintained that it's empty space, you would be right more than I by a million to one. If I create a model, a scale model of an atom, the part that's solid compared to the empty part that's empty space, is a million to one. The reason it feels solid is because of an electrical simulation. Now, you and I tend to believe we live in three dimensions. Einstein's corrected that, saying, no, no, it's four, because we've got to deal with time as a physical dimension. He's right. Particle physicists today will tell you that the universe exists in at least ten dimensions. Four of them are measurable, length, width, height, and time, and six of them are curled in less than 10 to the minus 35 centimeters. In other words, in terms, they can only infer by indirect means. We're talking about the physical universe. We haven't talked spiritual things yet. So the point is, we are suddenly... Well, we need to be very conscious of the fact that we are in a very special circumstance that we think of as physical reality. The real reality is out there far beyond us and far more real than we are. When Moses went up Mount Sinai, God showed him a model of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. The real ones are up there. What he built on the earth, even the, Ark of the, the famed Ark of the Covenant that Moses built, was a replica of something he saw in heaven. We're going to encounter the original in chapter 11 later. So we need to sort of recognize what's really going on here. John is propelled forward in time by a few thousand years, and he's entering into the real reality. And nobody said it was three-dimensional. It might be 12, 20, who knows? You and I have no capacity to deal in hyperspaces. There's only two kinds of people that can relate to hyperspaces, spaces of more than three dimensions. That's mathematicians that are specially trained or small children. You and I have been programmed in three dimensions, and it's very difficult for us to get beyond. If you're interested in this area, by the way, we have a briefing package called Beyond Perception, which attempts to summarize uh, some of the thinking of current particle physics and what its biblical relevance is. But let's us move on. Come up here, and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. So these things we're going to see are now after these things. What things are they after? Chapters 2 and 3. What was the subject of chapter 2 and 3? The churches. So by definition, what we're going to see here is post-church. It's going to be very interesting, but I'm going to suggest in a certain sense, it's not relevant to you and I in a direct sense, what's relevant to you and I are chapters 2 and 3. So we'll have a lot of fun in the coming, you know, uh, uh, chapters. A lot of interesting things, but recognize if you want to find out how does it relate to you, read chapter 2 and 3 again.
But let's move on. Verse 2. Great progress tonight. Verse 2. And immediately, or straightway, or however you want to say it, and immediately I was in the Spirit, John says. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. A couple of quick things. Immediately. How immediate is immediately? Paul would tell you in the twinkling of an eye. Now, a twinkling of an eye is not the flick of an eye. I, all the commentators make estimates. For, I don't know why they do this. You know, it's a tenth of a second or a thousandth of a second. They're all wrong. A twinkling of an eye, I suspect, is the quantum dimension of time, about 10 to the minus 33 seconds. You can't get smaller than that. It doesn't exist, it turns out, if you understand quantum physics. But in any case, uh, immediately, he's in the spirit. He's in the Spirit, and he's before the throne of God. Now, the throne wasn't set there. It sounds like that in English. It's always been setting there. It's set there in a sense he sees it that it was set there. That's what the, the, the Greek implies. The throne has been there all along. God has been on that throne for quite some, some time, thank goodness. And by the way, he still is. As we get discouraged, as we get down, and you don't have to read the Revela- book of Revelation to get see some wild things going on. All you have to do is pick up the paper. And watch, you know, what's going on in Washington and everywhere else in the world. And you get, you easily get discouraged. Remember, as we get into all these subjects, God is still on the throne. Nothing's happening that's outside his reach or not, that isn't being done with, in effect with his permission. And so it's going to end up glorifying him. Everything will. Now, by the way, this is the throne room of heaven. Chapters 4 and 5, very much, are going to be preoccupied by our participation in the throne room of heaven. We use those words so glibly, yet uh, how difficult it is to really pick up on all of that. The word throne occurs 45 times in the book of Revelation. It only occurs 15 times elsewhere in the New Testament. So it gives you a feeling of emphasis, if you will. Now the throne we're seeing here is not Jesus' throne. It's the Father's throne. And uh, I think that's an important thought. So hold your place here and turn to Psalm 110. Turn to Psalm 110. And this is the psalm. If you think this is confusing, don't be surprised. Jesus quoted this to confuse the Pharisees. Amen. <laughs> yeah, amen, right. I guess you know a few, huh? Yeah, right, okay. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy foot mine till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Interesting verse. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Who is he talking? Who's who's talking to who here? Father's talking to the Son. And um, the other exercise I'll leave for you to do if you haven't done it is to take Psalm 2 and diagram it. The second psalm is a dialogue, or I should say a trilogue, <laughs> between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I encourage you to try to understand Psalm 2 in any other way. But if you take a look at it and diagram figure out who's talking to who, and your three people you end up with, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, you'll begin to, it'll catch your breath as you realize there in Psalm 2 is a script, a transcript, if you will, of, of uh, a dialogue between the three persons of the Trinity. And if you're confused about whether you worship one God or three, how many here worship one God? Praise God. Good. That's Shema. Right? Here are Israel. The Lord is one. Right? In Isaiah, I am, uh, uh, there is none else, and so forth. Okay. But New Testament talks about what? Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Huh? How many believe in three gods? Well, you're not even guts now, right? How many believe in three persons of one God? They're safe with that one. Sounds a little better. Okay. Good. All right. All right. The name of God Elohim is in the plural. It's always in the plural. Let us make man in our image. It's a grammatical error. Elohim is plural. The bara, the verb, is singular. Also in Ecclesiastes 12.1, we have, speaking of the maker, it's actually the original, makers, plural. And in um, Isaiah 54.5, it speaks of the creator. But if you look at the original, it's plural. And you'll discover the, new, the Old Testament benediction in number 6. The Lord lift up his countenance upon and so forth. You read that, you'll discover it's speaking of three. When you see the throne of God in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, the seraphim say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. When you see those, uh, same thing occur in verse 8 of this chapter. When we get there, again, it's holy, holy, holy. One of the things you'll discover, and obviously it's a derailment tonight, but you'll discover that the Trinity is not just, quote, a New Testament idea. We're dealing with one book, 66 books written by 40 authors over thousands of years that are an integrated whole. 
The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. You'll discover the Trinity is all through the Scripture. Anyway, Psalm 110, verse 1, of course, is quoted in Hebrews 1, 3, 12, 2, elsewhere. And it's also alluded to, if you may, may recall, in the letter to Laodicea. Jesus uh, uh, makes reference to this in verse 21. Him that overcometh I will grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. See, so get, bear in mind, there's another throne that we're going to be talking about. The throne of David. That's an earthly throne. It'll have heavenly implications, but it's a very specific thing. The throne of David. And right now, we're talking about the throne of the Father. And he's sitting at God's right hand. Peter makes references in Acts 2.23. Stephen makes reference to it in Acts 7, verse 55. It's, and, of course, the whole book of Ephesians. The whole book of Ephesians deals with the manner in which you and I are, in effect, seated in the heavenlies right now by being in Christ. The book of Ephesians deals with those great ideas. Now, he says, of course, that he was in the Spirit. This, this occurs four times in the book of Revelation, incidentally. But let's get down to verse 3 and keep moving here. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. The first thing you notice that what John sees on the throne is indistinct. He doesn't see a man sitting. He doesn't see a, a form of some kind. He has no form. What he sees is bright colored light. And the classic way of trying to communicate that was by the use of precious or semi-precious stones. We find that all through the scripture. In fact, the jasper stone, which some of the commentators describe was purplish or multicolored, and indeed it may be, but I notice in Revelation 21 verse 11 when we get there that it's clear. Now one of the problems, by the way, let me alert you, I've spent 40 years fooling around with this as a hobby and collecting stuff, and I have one of the things I was very early, I was very optimistic on, was trying to unravel the mystery of some of these stones. Except you discover when you investigate this carefully, the names of semi-precious stones are so uh, inconsistent, so used so differently by different cultures throughout history, that it's a very, very difficult task. No one, to my knowledge, and I just may be uninformed here, I have, not, I have yet to see anyone that has really reconciled all these things satisfactorily in terms of what color are they really, etc. This will come up in two major places. It will occur in the breastplate of the high priest. And incidentally, today, that mystery gets lightened a bit because you can go look at it. Because the Temple Institute in Jerusalem has made the one they're going to use in the temple as it gets rebuilt. And so they have wrestled with great scholars, working very diligently, trying to determine what, in fact, the stones were that are recorded there in uh, Exodus 28 and so forth. And so uh, we have perhaps the benefit of their scholarship, although they could also have some errors. Who knows? Where it comes up again, the reason it will entertain our interest in chapter 21 is the same stones are used in describing the city, the, the New Jerusalem. And so we'll deal with some of those, these issues there, but I'll just mention, in fact, that there's still some dispute. I'm going to regard jasper as a clear stone because in Revelation 21 11, that's what it's described. Although some authorities describe it as a purplish or multicolored stone, and I'm sure it comes in many forms. Some authorities even uh, tried to relate it to a diamond, although the hardness was not the issue in those days. It was most of these ter uh, terms are semi-precious, as they say. It was the last stone in the high priest breastplate, it incidentally represented in the breastplate, it represented the twelve stones in the breastplate represented the twelve tribes of Israel. So each of the stones is correlative to one of the twelve tribes. The Jasper is the last one. It was named after it was connected with Benjamin. The name Benjamin means the son of my right hand. So it's interesting that the Sardin stone is here. It's going to of course appear again in the in the wall and in the foundation of the New Jerusalem. Now, the Sardius stone was the first stone of the breastplate of the high priest. It represented Reuben, which was the firstborn of Jacob. So Jesus is, of course, the firstborn of the dead, and he's also the son of my right hand. You see how every one of these things point to Jesus Christ. And, of course, the Sardius stone is also the, uh, the sixth stone in the foundation of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. Pliny says it was discovered in Sardis. That's why it's called the Sardius stone. And its color apparently was fiery red, according to Pliny. So... 
that sort of fits, you know, in terms of um, maybe, maybe referring to the blood. Who knows? You can run with that if you like. Now, the word rainbow here is, uh, is actually the Greek word iris, which can also mean like a halo. But in this case, it's a likened to an emerald. Now, emerald we think of as green, but they actually come in some surprisingly different colors. Uh, but also we find the emerald or sapphire frequently used uh, in describing the throne of God and some of the other glimpses that we have in the Scripture. And again, your real tool in challenging the, uh, the uh, enigmas of the book of Revelation is a concordance. What you do with any of these words is take them, look in a concordance, find out where they are also used, and you'll discover that that will be a treasure hunt, which, is, uh, which rarely fails to give you a surprise. Well, let's get to verse 4. Round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And this leads to one of the major controversies about the book of Revelation. Who are the 24 elders? Now the word elder is presbyteros in the Greek. It's used in the New Testament for the highest officials of the church. And Titus 1.5 and elsewhere, they represented, in effect, the whole church when assembled. The elders. In Acts 15, we have the elders assembled, uh, entertaining the debate about uh, what a Gentile has to do to be saved. In uh, Acts 20, we have Paul saying his goodbye to the Ephesian elders, but they this, the elders represented, when assembled, they represented the church. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 9. We might take a look at that because it gives us some other insight about uh, our... Uh, I won't look at all of these. We've got a whole bunch of them. But let's take, up, take a look at 1 Peter 5. In, in verse 5, he says, In like manner, so ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Whom resists steadfast in the faith, verse 9, knowing that the same uh, afflictions uh, are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So we have the whole idea of Christian service unto the coming of the Lord, and the supervision is by the elders. I might mention, by the way, a little girl came home from Sunday school. Mother said, what did you learn today? She said, well, we studied about heaven. Really? What did you learn about heaven? She says, there were only 24 Presbyterians there. <laughs> At least you'll remember what the word elder is in the Greek. That's where we get the term, where they draw the term for it. Now, these elders have some interesting issues here. Uh, they have on their heads crowns of gold. And uh, these are not diadem like a ruling crown. These are Stephanos. These are crowns like a victor's crown. These are crowns that are earned. Are earned. They're Stephanos. And we find those all through the scripture. We've talked about those. The notes will be in your thing. The crowns are never promised to angels. The idea that these are somehow a super council of angels sounds colorful but has no biblical basis. The crowns are awarded by Jesus Christ at the Bema Seat of Christ. Remember we studied that in, uh, when we studied 1 Corinthians. You can go through all of that again. The Bema Seat, the Judgment Seat of Christ, where He gives rewards to the faithful. You can't earn your salvation. Jesus paid for that 100%. But what the crowns are given to is for various things. There are five crowns specifically discussed in the Scripture. The crown of life is given in James 1.12 and Revelation 2.10 it was mentioned for those who have suffered for His sake. Remember the church in Smyrna was promised the crown of life. The crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8 for all those who loved His appearing who loved his appearing. Do you love his appearing? Think about it. The crown of glory in 1 Peter 5, 4, for those who fed the lambs, the sheep, or the flock. Crown of glory. Crown of incorruptible, 1 Corinthians 9, 25, for those who press on steadfastly. And the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19, for those who win souls. Are there just five crowns? I don't think so. Maybe they're all just other names for the main crown. Or maybe there's just, this is just five of a long list. I have no idea. But there are five specific crowns enumerated in the scripture. And these are the recipients of these crowns. These are the, Stephan- these are the recipients of the Stephanos. They're sitting in white raiment. Washed raiment. They are granted righteousness. And we, we'll know before it's all over, they're righteous in the blood of the Lamb. Now, one of the things that I'm going to suggest, I personally believe... I'll phrase it that way. You do not have to accept this. Just, just at least you'll know my prejudices. I believe these 24 elders are signifying the presence of the church. Why do I do that? Because if you study the number 24, 
Somebody say, well, gee, there's 12 apostles and 12 tribes of Israel. Great, but what's that? 12 plus 12 does not equal 24 in a Levitical sense. Numbers are, 3 plus 4 doesn't make 7, you know, in terms of the symbolic use of the numbers. 24 occurs in the scripture only, explicitly, only once. It turns out that the priesthood under David had grown very, very large. So David took the priesthood and organized it into 24 elements. Each one was called a course. The priesthood was organized in 24 courses. It's easy to remember where this occurs. It occurs in 1 Chronicles 24. Can't forget that. That's easy. But what he does, he he organizes them in 24 courses. Now, in Israel, the priesthood was distinct from the a royal line. The royal, line, royal tribe was Judah. The, the king always came from the tribe of Judah. David was of the tribe of Judah. The priests always came from the tribe of Levi. They are, were to remain separate. That's why Jesus Christ, in the book of Hebrews, it's emphasized that he is a priest, but after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. How can Jesus Christ be a priest if he's, if he's uh, not from the tribe of Levi? He's from the tribe of Judah. Because he's not after the Aaronic or Mosaic priesthood. He's after the Melchizedek priesthood. Melchizedek shows up in Genesis 14, just a couple of verses, and would disappear into obscurity if, in fact, he had not been amplified, both by the Psalm, Psalm 110 that we just read, gets into that. Also, the book of Hebrews makes a big thing of the fact that Melchizedek was a king and a priest, both. Some scholars believe he was Shem, one of the sons of Noah, but that's conjecture. The point is, just as Melchizedek... In the scripture, has no beginning and end of days. The rabbinical argument in the book of Hebrews makes point of that. Not that he literally had no beginning or end of days. Some people think so, but I think that all it's doing is making a, a, a scriptural argument. Just as he had no beginning and end of days recorded in the scripture, so Jesus Christ had no beginning and end of days in actuality. But Jesus is our priest after the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? Is that he supersedes, he, he precedes, he, he's a, a, a more significant than Aaron. Because the way the writer in Hebrews puts it, Levi was still in the loins of Abraham when he was giving tithes to Melchizedek. That makes Melchizedek not only superior to Abram, but certainly his offspring, like Levi. That's what the, You have to think like a rabbi to follow the book of Hebrews. But the point is, um, now, there are only three people in the Scripture that are kings and priests. Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, and the church. You and I are kings and priests. We are a royal priesthood, according to uh, Peter's writings and elsewhere. So, because of that, now you're going to discover when we get to chapter 5, but maybe we should at this point peek ahead while this is on our minds. You might peek ahead in chapter 5 because it's going to talk about a song they sing in verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God. By thy blood, out of every kindred, tongue, and people, and nation. So the fact that the 24 elders are singing the song of the redeemed, I believe they're the redeemed. Now, you should understand, there are some ancient manuscripts, not the oldest nor the best, that have this, not in us, but not in the first person, but in the third person, has redeemed them. But in, in discoveries as recently as 1860 have discredited that. The best manuscript evidence is that these uh, 24 elders are singing the song of the redeemed, applying it to themselves. That's in Codex Sinaiticus, Basilicanus, um, and a handful of others. There's one Codex, Codex Alexandrinus, that has it differently. And that these are purchased by his blood. Who's purchased by blood? We are. But there's another argument that you probably will not find in any commentary, but I think you might find it interesting anyway. We're in the middle of the book of Revelation of the throne of God, but there's another vision of the throne of God in the Old Testament. And that's in Daniel chapter 7. And if you pop over to Daniel chapter 7, you get through the, four, the famous four beasts of different empires, from verses 1 through 8. You have all the four different empires that go. But then it says in verse 9, I beheld till the thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, his hair on his head was as pure wool, his throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire. This is very, it sounds very, very similar 
to the passage in Revelation chapter 1. But moving on, it says, A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set. The books were opened. And I held, beheld then because of the voice of the great words. Which, and it goes on to talk about some of the other parts of the thing. If you study chapter 7 of Daniel, you'll find, as you go, go through this, many of the details that are identical with the image of Revelation. But there's what's interesting about the book of Daniel, chapter 7, it's also interesting in, in Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1 and 10 that the details in those visions of the throne of God are not dissimilar from the details in Revelation 4 and 5, except in one particular. Only in Revelation 4 and 5 do you have the 24 elders. So whatever they represent... They seem to be invisible in the Old Testament. What does Paul tell you in Ephesians 3? Is that the church was a mystery hidden from the Old Testament. So the fact that the 24 elders may represent the church, it doesn't surprise me that they're not explicitly visible in the Old Testament. Now that's not an argument to build doctrine on, but I think just an observation you might, you might find uh, uh, intriguing. Let's keep moving. Uh, let's Revelation chapter 4. We're all the way down to verse 4, right? 5 now. Great. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire before, burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, these seven spirits of God are also uh, described in, in Revelation chapter 1. And they show up, of course, in Revelation 2 and 3. But in chapter 1, the last verse identifies these flames of fire as being, yes, the Holy Spirit, but indwelling what? The church. And I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't build doctrine on it, but again, it's consistent that these seven flames are now in heaven before the throne. And, of course, are the seven spirits of God. These lightnings and thunderings and voices you'll find occur four times in the book of Revelation. And they're also, you'll find them in Exodus 19 at, the, at Sinai when the law is given. When you hear lightnings, thunderings, and voices, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to realize something's coming, and it's very ominous. When you see lightnings and thunderings on the horizon, what do you expect? A storm. And what's coming? Whoa, what a storm. And aren't you glad you're in the mezzanine watching it rather than being down there, which is rough. Verse 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around about the throne were four living creatures full of eyes before and behind. Exodus 24 it also describes a sea of glass, but it describes it like it's a sapphire stone. What color is sapphire? I have no idea. Sapphires aren't necessarily one color. You get all different kinds of colors, actually. But the sea of glass, I'm going to suggest something to you. And one of the reasons, first of all, let me double back on this uh, suggestion I made. I encourage you to do a study of the tabernacle for many, many reasons. The tabernacle was a structure. When, when Charlton Heston came down from Mount Sinai, you remember, yeah. He, he had under one arm two tables of stone. Under the other arm, he should have been carrying a set of engineering drawings. Because what he got up there was not just the Ten Commandments, but he also got specific specifications for a portable sanctuary, a very strange structure. He had instructions on how it was to be built, what its measurements, how it was to be uh, fabricated, how it was to be moved, how it was to be taken care of, incredible detail. And uh, I encourage you at your leisure to get into this. Uh, do a study for several reasons. You need to understand the pattern that these things take. And secondly, you'll make another discovery if you do it diligently. You'll discover that every detail of the tabernacle has a pointer directly to Jesus Christ. The tabernacle consists, if, and I'm going to use a, a roughly an 18-inch cubit here to put it in our terms so we're comfortable with it. You had a, a, an area that was about uh, 25 by 75, as I recall, right? Or 45. Anyway, um, it's about 75 feet long this way. It's a linen fence, white linen above eye level, supported by posts that are in brass sockets in the ground. Everything outside this building is brass related. Brass is, this, is something, is a symbol of that which needed to be judged. Brass could sustain heat. That was Levitical symbol for judgment. There was only one gate, 
to get in here. And as you, got, as you entered this gate, the first thing you encountered was the brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice, first step. Then you came across this thing called the laver. It's sometimes translated molten sea. Molten was a word meaning cast, and the sea was a, like a big bowl of water. So it's a strange, molten sea is a strange old English term. It really means this, what you and I would call a brass laver, large enough for someone to immerse themselves in, see? Then you had this portable building. This portable building was made of vertical planks of wood that was wrapped in gold and set in silver sockets in the ground. It's roughly 15 feet wide, 15 feet high, and about 45 feet long, the first 30 feet being a 15 by 30 foot room that's called the holy place. As you entered the holy place, on the left was the menorah, the seven branch candlestick, the only source of light in the building. On the right side was the table of showbread, a loaf of each of the 12 tribes, changed every uh, Shabbat. This, finer, this inner cubicle, 15 by 15 by 15 in size, was the Holy of Holies. Or more, everybody calls it the Holy of Holies. It's actually the holy place of the Holy Ones, plural. Trinity again, by the way. Inside this, there are two things. There is the Ark of the Covenant, this uh, box that carried the, the, the Ten Commandments and the uh, uh, sample of manna and uh, Aaron's rod that budded and some other things. And uh, it had on it, it what you and I would call a lid... Scripture calls it a mercy seat. And on the lid were these two cherubim uh, engraved or modeled. There are seven pieces of furniture, and every one of them refers to Jesus Christ. First of all, the gate. He says, I am the door. He that come, anyone cometh in but by me is a thief and a robber. The altar speaks of the sacrifice of the cross in many ways. The laver refers to the washing. And Ephesians talk about washing of the water by the word. So what you and I are, to, you and I are washed in two different ways. We're washed once and for all from our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are to wash daily by being immersed in the Word of God, in the New Testament Revelation. As you come in, oh, and this building is kind of strange, by the way. As you walk in this building, here's this incredible, can you imagine a beautiful building like that would be gold-covered piece of wood? Uh, and that speaks of Jesus Christ, too, because that wood was acacia wood. What is acacia wood? The thorn bush, th uh, thorn bush of the desert. The thorn was a symbol of the curse, wasn't it? The burning bush attracted Moses because it was a thorn bush. It wasn't consumed. And that's a symbol of grace. That the, that the, the, the sin by the curse is not destroyed by God, but rather uh, finds a way to preserve it. The wood wrapped with gold. The, the wood wrapped with gold speaks of Christ's humanity and yet his Godhead. It's, the entire thing rests on silver sockets. In the Levitical system, silver is synonymous with blood, the redemption blood. The whole thing rests on his blood, in effect. Judas even mentioned that. Took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it on the temple floor. Behold, I have betrayed innocent silver, no, innocent blood. See, silver and blood were equated in the Levitical mind. Just out, associated with, but just outside the veil that separates these was the golden altar, the altar, altar of the incense. When you walked to the tabernacle, all you saw was the white linen. All you saw was his righteousness. You could only enter through him by his sacrifice, washed in his word, to enter in the fellowship. The only source of light was the seven-branch the seven candlestick. I am the vine, ye are the branches, the one plus six being the seven that's complete. And I am the light. He made, in the book, Gospel of John is organized around seven miracles, seven discourses, and seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Bread of life, the light of the world. I am the door, etc. Anyway, I encourage you to study this. What I'm getting at is, I want to talk a little bit about this laver. It's the only element of the entire tabernacle design that has no specifications. Everything else is specified in great detail. Even the menorah was be beaten out of a single piece of gold to, to, to emphasize its unity. The, la the labor, though, is what we wash in. Now, as you study this and you study the throne of God, you begin to get an equ equivalence between the sea of glass that the saints are standing on and the labor that was the tabernacle. And when you stop and think about it, it's a strange pun of the Holy Spirit, but it works. In the New Testament period, in the period we live in, we are to wash in the Word of God by immersing ourselves in the Word of God. That's the idiom that Paul uses in Ephesians and elsewhere, right? Up there, we'll be standing on it. We sing that, don't we? Standing on the promises. You say, Chuck, that's a really kind of a way out pun. Yeah. But it's a way out God, man. Yeah. Okay, anyway, I won't badger that any further. By the way, another thing about these living creatures. Uh, unfortunate King James translation calls them beasts. The word here actually is zoa. 
It's the word from which we develop the word zoo. It means living creature. Later on, we're going to encounter a different Greek word, therion, which is a wild beast, a brutal, bestial, savage, ferocious creature. That's the term that's translated beast in Revelation 13 and elsewhere. Here, that in the English, it's the same word as used. It's unfortunate because here it's not a beast in a in a adversative sense. It is a living creature. So you might want to be alert to that in your Bibles when it speaks of these four living creatures around the throne. And uh, I think I've left myself time to get into this a little bit. I hope so. Let's keep. Let's jump right into this here. We're in verse uh, what um, six? Okay. Thank you. Six. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Okay. Um, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like under crystal and in the midst of the throne around about the throne were the four living creatures full of eyes before and behind and you're going to discover these four living creatures are very similar to the four cherubim that Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10 and they're very similar to the seraphim that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 6 most scholars, and I lean this way think the seraphim and the cherubim are the same different words for the same creature other scholars think they're distinct. They may be right, because the cherubim are around the throne of God or below the throne of God, and the seraphim are above the throne of God. So maybe they are distinct. And don't get hung up with wings, because we're seeing multidimensional creatures in a three-dimensional place. So if you're going to render this some way, you don't necessarily think of wings in the Renaissance uh, art sense, if you will. But in any case, uh, these four living creatures in Ezekiel have four faces. And they also have here, uh, verse 7, and the first living creature was a, like a lion doesn't say it was a lion, it says like a lion. And the second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face as a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. So what we're dealing with here, I believe, are the cherubim. The cherubim first show up in Eden, in chapter 3, verse 24. You remember when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden? The cherubim guarded the way to the tree of life. Most people assume that they're there to keep Adam and Eve from, keep them out of there. It wouldn't have taken the cherubim to do that. What do you use a cherubim for? To go after another cherubim. Who are they guarding the way, the way of the tree of life from? The anointed cherub that covereth. They're there to protect the way of the tree of life so that in, in the Revelation, uh, at the end of Revelation, the way of the tree of life is restored to man. The cherubim there are there to guard it. So there's a whole issue there in your study of the book of Genesis to be sensitive to it. And that leads to the anointed cherub that covereth, Lucifer, who, who got into a lot of trouble. And... Uh, God is spoken throughout the Bible as he that dwelleth among the cherubim, or between the cherubim. Uh, I want to talk about those cherubim, but let me get, make sure I get through the chapter first, and I'll double back on that. The four living creatures each had each of them six wings about them. They were, had full of eyes within. They rest not, day nor night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. It's the same phrase you'll find in the, uh, in the throne of God vision that Isaiah saw in chapter 6. If we get to verse 3, you have these seraphim saying, holy, 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 and so forth. So again, I think in Isaiah 6 and here, in both cases, I believe it's a reference to the Trinity. And when those living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fell down before him that sat on the throne and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying... Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. What are you going to do with your throne when you get it? You're going to cast it in the glassy sea, aren't you? You betcha. Now, let me talk a little bit about these cherubim. There's something you need to have in your mind about the design of the four Gospels. And I won't go through this in detail because it's just a summary here. It's, it's generally this little chart's included in our commentaries and on the Gospels when we get into the Gospels. Uh, take your notes on the Gospel of John if you want or whatever. But we notice the four Gospels each describe the Lord Jesus Christ from a particular point of view. Matthew is a Jew. He presents Jesus Christ as the Mashiach, the uh, Nagi, the Messiah of, of Israel. And like a, a, a good Jew would, he starts his genie... All but one have a genealogy. Uh, Ab uh, Matthew's genealogy starts like a good Jew would. From Abraham, goes from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, down to David. And from David, he goes to the royal line. He ends up getting to Joseph, the legal father of Jesus Christ. Mark presents Jesus Christ as the suffering servant. He was not writing to the Jews, he was writing to the Romans. And he presents him as the suffering servant. So he um, uh, has no genealogy. You don't worry about the a, about a pedigree of a servant. Luke was a physician. He was interested in Jesus Christ. He presents him as a man. His humanity is what he's occupied by. He has his genealogy, as he would, from Adam 
all the way down. He goes from Adam to Abraham. It's unique. From Abraham to David, they're the same as Matthew. But when he gets to David, he doesn't go through the, the um, first surviving son of Bathsheba, Solomon, who's the royal line. He goes through the second son of Bathsheba, the surviving son of Bathsheba, uh, Nathan, and takes that on down to whom? To Mary. And thanks to the uh, exception in the Torah by the daughters of Zelophehad, which God put there, Mary has claim, in effect, under those circumstances, through Heli, her father, uh, to the uh, uh, house of David. So, so the blood curse that was pronounced in Jeconiah in, Matthew, in uh, Jeremiah 22 is subverted, if you will, by God, because he pronounced the blood curse on, on the royal line, on Jeconiah and all his descendants. But Joseph was not the blood father of Jesus Christ, so the curse did not continue, but rather it came, he came through Mary, upon which the blood curse did not sit. Uh, the blood curse in Jeconiah. Anyway, and of course, John has a genealogy which you don't recognize. The first three verses are the genealogy of the pre-existent one. So Matthew presents Jesus the Messiah, Mark the servant, Luke, son of man, and uh, uh, John the son of God. And every detail, the most common word, the first miracle, the last miracle, how the gospel closes, and all that, all supports that theme. And I won't go through it all here, other than to say, because of this, scholars have recognized for many centuries that these four faces of the cherubim are suggestive, at least, of the Gospels. Matthew in terms of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And uh, ox is the traditional classic symbol of service. And uh, Luke, the son of man, uh, is one of the man is one of them, and the uh, eagle for John. Now, what makes this interesting even further is that when you study, and I won't go through the rest of this, you can get it out of the charts, it'll be in the notes for the, with these tapes. When you study the camp of Israel, you know that there are 13 tribes because the tribe of Joseph was split into two from Manasseh. So you can always get 12, even if you leave one out by playing games, right? The tabernacles was in the middle of the camp, and the Levites took care of this. The priests and Aaron, Moses and Aaron were here, and the other th three families of Levi, the uh, Kohathites, the Gershonites, and the Merites, camped around the tabernacle, took care of the tabernacle. The other 12 tribes were to camp around the tabernacle in camps of three tribes each. Uh, on the east side, not only the tribe of Judah, but Issachar and Zebulun were to camp with them, and collectively they were called the camp of Judah. Now, don't confuse it with the tribe of Judah, the three tribes, but the three together are called the camp of Judah. And they were to rally around the ensign of the tribe of Judah, which was, of course, a lion on the ensign. On the west side, we had Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin that were to rally around. They were called the camp of, of uh, uh, Ephraim, and they rallied around uh, Ephraim's tribal symbol, which of course was an ox. On the south side, we had Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. And Reuben, well, and incidentally, the reason you also notice this chart, the 12, tri the 12 signs of the Matzeroth, the Hebrew names of the 12 constellations around the ecliptic, uh, correspond to the 12 tribes. And there's another whole study I, I won't get into here. It's all in our signs in the heavens background if you're interested. But the point is, this, the camp of Reuben's symbol was a, on the ensign was a man. And on uh, the north side, we have Dan, Naphtali, and Asher, with Dan's tribal standard being the one to rally them around, and that was an eagle. Now, one of the things people always challenge me is, you say, Chuck, everything in the scripture you say is there by design. Well, okay, why do we know in Numbers chapter 1 and 2 all these numbers? Because they took a census of all the men able to go to war 20 years and older, not counting the infirm or the women or the children, right? And we get these tribal, this tribal census. And what's significant? Why does the Holy Spirit want us to know that the tribe of Benjamin had 35,400 in the numbering in Numbers chapter one and two, and so forth? You go, there's at least 12 questions you can come up with here, right? See, what no one bothers to do is to figure out from those numbers what the population of the camps were. And I think that's kind of an interesting study. I won't take you through the arithmetic here. But in Numbers chapter 2, we discover, by adding those numbers, the camp of Judah was 186,400. And the camp of Reuben was 151,400. The camp of Ephraim, 108,100. And the camp of Dan, 157,600. And you say, that's not very exciting, Chuck. What am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> well, you have to, now you're going to have to try to think like a rabbi. Here is the camp of Israel. In the middle of the camp are the Levites with a tabernacle. I don't know how big they are, but whatever size they are when they camp around the tabernacle, I'm going to call that a unit. I don't know if it's 100 feet, 100 yards, or 100 miles, but there they are, okay? We actually do know a little bit about it. I believe it's 12 miles, 12 square miles involved, but let's not get into all that right here. Let's just take it relatively. 
We got another problem. The Torah says that the tribe of the camp of Judah were to camp east of the tabernacle. East, excuse me, east of the Levites. Well, if you're Judah and you're trying hard as you can to keep the Torah, you can build your camp, whatever width they've chosen, you can go that wide, right? You can't go wider because if you camp over here, you're southeast, not east. If you go over here, you're northeast, not east. Do you follow the logic? If you're going to be a rabbi, rabbinical in your thinking, you're going to stay east. So you can go as wide as they are, and then you take as much distance as you need for your population, right? And if you are Ephraim, you got the same problem. You're supposed to camp west. Well, you can camp as wide as is west. Anything wider than that is no longer strictly west. And then you take as much as you need, right? And likewise, north and south. You get the idea. So what I like to do, this, one way to describe this is to take a look at the camp of Israel as Balaam saw it from the mountains when Balak had hired him to, to, to curse Israel and see what Balaam saw. Another way we can do it in our mind's eye is I have parked out in the parking lot a jet ranger. And it's a very specially equipped one because it not only is a range-free jet ranger, it also is a time machine. And so in your imagination, I want you to get in this jet ranger with me and we're going to go over to Israel. And as we go over to Israel, we're also going to crank the clock back to the days when Israel was encamped in the wilderness. And as we approach the camp of Israel, we're going to approach it naturally from the east. And as we approach the camp over the air, we look down there and we realize that we have the tabernacle. And surrounding the tabernacle, we have four ensigns. We have a lion, a man, an ox, and an eagle. And we begin to realize that whether they knew it or not, they were forming a model of the throne of God. Interesting. But what also catches our eye is the layout of the camp of Israel. And despite some artists who have done some beautiful work but missed the key point, they don't realize that if you draw this to scale, the lion of the tribe of Judah has 186 units. It's the longest one. The shortest one is Ephraim. And the other two are essentially equal length. And I don't know about you, but when I look at that, I see a cross. And that cross was laid out for 40 years on the Sinai Desert. Testifying of what? Of a love story that was to be written in blood on a wooden cross 2,000 years ago. Praise God. Every detail, every number, every subtlety in the Old and New Testament is there by design and points to Jesus Christ. Exciting stuff. Fortunately, our time's up. <laughs> I'm getting wound up here a little bit. Next time, we're going to study Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5, the saga introduced in chapter 4 continues because a major event occurs. In chapter 5, we have presented from the throne of God a seven-sealed book written within and on the backside. The book has to be taken by a kinsman of Adam. A man has to take the book. And at first, the assertion is that no man in heaven, in earth, or under the earth had prevailed to open the book. You and I may not understand what was going on, but John does. He sobs convulsively as he realizes the significance of that. And one of the elders says, Hey, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he hath prevailed to open the book. And John turns and he sees the lamb as it had been slain, takes the book, seven-sealed book, and he opens those seals. And those seals then, those seven seals become the basis of the coming chap chapter, basically chapter 6, as the seven seals open up. And actually, chapter 8 also, it goes on. But the point is, those seven seals are a key issue. Now, I maintain you have no chance of really understanding Revelation chapter 5 unless you have done a careful study of the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. There's a love story, a little tiny four-chapter book in the Old Testament called the book of Ruth. And that book of Ruth, if you'll study it carefully, will get, unlock the mystery of Revelation chapter 5. It's interesting that the main of the four feasts of the, the feasts of Moses, the first three are, the, are prophetic of the first coming, the last three are prophetic of the second coming, the one in between is the fourth feast, the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. It's the one that's prophetic of the church. And it was in Acts 2 that they were, of course, celebrating that when the church was born. 
It's interesting that to this day the Jewish uh, people read the book of Ruth at the Feast of Shavuot. They may not realize why. But the book of Ruth is the key to understanding both the church but also Revelation chapter 5. So your homework for, for the next time we get together is to have at least read the book of Ruth and if possible, do a serious study of it. If you have a little briefing package called The Romance of Redemption, it's basically a, 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 a in-depth study of the book of Ruth. And uh, so I commend that to you in preparation for next time as the real action uh, starts. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we do indeed come before your throne, Father, this night. We thank you, Father, that we can come before your throne without an appointment, that we can enter into your presence because of the intercession of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We come before your throne, Father, pleading his shed blood on our behalf. We thank you, Father, that it's his righteousness that you imputed to us by faith if we abide in Jesus Christ. So, Father, we come before your throne this night in awe of who you are. We come in awe, Father, because of the revelation you've given us of yourself and of him in your word. And we thank you, Father, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that illuminates these treasures to our understanding. Father, we do pray that you would indeed illuminate these treasures to our understanding and, above all, to our lives. We pray, Father, that you would help us in this treasured book understand ever more thoroughly the extremes that you've gone to that we might be redeemed, that we might live, that we might have an eternity in your presence. We pray, Father, that you would, through the mystery of your Holy Spirit, help us to apply these insights to our lives. Help us, Father, to prioritize our lives in terms of the ultimate reality, the heavenly reality. And help us, Father, to take this physical reality that we share but for a moment as just a place we're passing through. Help us, Father, to keep a light touch. Help us, Father, to simply use the sequence of events in our lives as opportunities for your word and for your kingdom. Help us, Father, to witness. Help us, Father, to edify our brethren. Help us, Father, to redeem the time in eternal terms. And Father, as we go forth as an assembly, Father, we pray that you would increase in each of us a love for one another. Help us, Father, to walk as you would have us walk. Help us, Father, to keep our hearts and minds focused on you. For we commit ourselves, our lives, our families, and our homes to you in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.